Nancy Richards. Indeed it is SFM Literature here on SFM. Welcome, nice to have you with me, Nancy Richards. Also with Derek Fordyce here in Cape Town and Johannesburg, we have Sulu Falopalo and Kanye Bilani. Well, it's a show, as you know, about books and words and reading and writing and award-winning. So, as always, if you'd like to join us, you can 0892 10 2010, or at a later stage, you can pop us an email at box at safm.co.za with your requests or thoughts or details. So, what we have lined up today and our hero item, could this perhaps maybe be a heroine item? Because in our hero slot today is no less a multi-talented South African than Peter Durkace. And today we're going to be hearing about his latest book called Panorama. In our text item, the focus very much on reading with an organisation, innovation I should say, called Shine. Going to be talking to the co-founder, Marita Weisenberg, and one of the managers, Namawe Chunika. Of the news at two in our book two feature, a story that you will undoubtedly know about. It's the story of little Pippi Kruger, a little girl who suffered third-degree burns over 80% of her body and lived to tell the tale. We'll be talking to both her mum and Colleen Nordea, who together wrote the book called Pippi. In Bookshelf, our reader today is Jared Neertling. We'll find out what his title of choice is. And then our story feature, well, a couple of weeks ago we promised to bring you the woman who founded a campaign for 100 writers to launch 100 books, each written in 40 hours. She's Gretzud Matche, and this time we uh, have her in the bag. She's based in New Zealand. At uh, 3 o'clock, our fireside chat with Roger Webster today. He's going to be talking about archaeology in the Kruger Park. And in Backpage, we're very, very pleased about this one. Very pleased to be bringing you the winner of the 2013 Nielsen Booksellers' Choice Award. And the winner is Reverend Frank Shikani with his book called Eight Days in September. It's a behind-the-scenes account of the removal of Tabo Mbeki from presidency. And to close, as always, the Sunday play. And the play today is Mama Doesn't Sing Anymore. Just quickly to tell you that fans of the Inspector Wallander books will be very pleased to know that the Swedish author, dramatist and also AIDS activist Henning Mankel, he's going to be here in South Africa. He's coming for the Open Book Festival right now happening here in Cape Town. And we will hear a little bit more about that in the coming weeks right here on SAFM Literature. So that's what it is. Stay tuned. First up on uh, SFM Literature Day, I wonder if I really need to introduce Peter Dirk Ace to you. Uh, probably not, but uh, if you don't know who he is, he's a satirist, writer, playwright, and also the most famous woman in Africa, Vita Besedenhout. Well, Peter Dirk Ace has struck again with a book called Panorama. It's a book, in fact, of an earlier play that he wrote, and it's set on Robin Island. And I also spoke to him about his other alter ego, Bambi Kellerman, who's presently performing at the Fugard Theatre in, uh, in Cape Town in Fifty Shades of Bambi. But first up, Panorama. It started as a play in 1987 for the Grahamstown Festival of that year. It was also the first time that I suddenly became aware of the power of the island, this anonymous reality of something there for the future. And again, remember, we didn't even have pictures of Nelson Mandela. We didn't know what he looked like. Uh, he'd already been moved from, from Robben Island to Paulsboro Prison. I also remembered my experiences on Robben Island, of course, living in Cape Town. Every time you come around to Val Drive, the first thing you see is Robben Island. And at the age of 11, we were taken over on our Enchikerk Sunday school picnic from Pinelands, to Robben Island, and there we went on this boat, and we had a bryflace, and we had watermelon, and all the things, and sang little songs, nice Jesus songs, and 
Not for a second did anybody mention the fact that there was a prison there. We didn't even notice it, because it hasn't got that high walls, and of course there was bushes around and, and the beach. And the next time I was uh, on the boat to Robben Island was, was in the, it was before, yes, 85, um, Helen Sussman contacted me and she said, there's somebody on the island who wants to meet you. I thought, what, no, wait, 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 what, what are you talking about? She said, prisoners are allowed to have visitors. Will you go? I can't tell you who it is. I thought, who is it? Is it the man himself? It wasn't. But I went onto that prison boat with my little knapsack stuffed with things that I thought they wouldn't have. A Time magazine, a Newsweek, all these things I th- thought I'll smuggle it in, including my play of Sela Usturi that had just been banned by the censors. Um, I was put into this room, very friendly, everybody's very friendly. How is Evita, the policeman said. And this young man was brought, and he was a prisoner who was a fan. I said, but from where? He said, from your videos. I said, but how long have you been here? Oh, so many, so many years, but they show us your videos in jail. They show you my videos in jail. And so I said, I brought you things. Do you know he didn't want any of those things because they were already reading those magazines. He wanted scope. (laughs) And so anyway, all these memories suddenly sort of clashed, and I thought... I'm going to write a play about the school teachers who I knew about, two white school teachers who teach the children in the primary school of the Warders. And that's the play of Karen and Rosa, who are teachers uh, on the island. They look at their panorama in the evening with their gin and tonics, which is Table Mountain, the most beautiful, magnificent view in the world. The fact that the prisoners didn't have a view, they didn't have windows that they could see the mountain, they just looked straight onto another wall was a very important thing to, to know at the time. And then the drama was that a young black woman who is a banned person is brought over to the island to see her dying father in jail. And the only place she can spend the night is in the house of these two teachers, which becomes a life-changing experience for them because they suddenly their terror is suddenly turned into interest and they find they have a lot in common. And it was an extraordinary play to do at the time because it was of the moment, a play in 1987 taking place on Robin Island in 1987. And when we were preparing for the 2010 Soccer World Cup and this huge big thing was happening in Mooley Point, I suddenly thought, why do I have this feeling that there's more to the story than just the play? What happens now? And I suddenly took the, the, the character of Sibi Makale, who, 22 years later, is the mother of two born free sons, going back to the island. They, with their, these boys with their Googles and their iPhones and all the paraphernalia of now, and the excitement of the soccer stadium, much more excited about that than Robben Island. And uh, suddenly there was this extraordinary story of the then and the now, and the link, and again, this reminder that Robben Island had, besides the great stories of the gods on the Olympus of democracy, had stories about very small people, ordinary people, who were also frightened and also wanted to believe in the future and had a sense of humour. Whoa, that's a lot of stories there. Was that too much? No, no, (laughs) it's absolutely wonderful, but I'm, I'm going to hold some of the other thoughts and come back to, why didn't you write your own story? Why didn't you write your own 11-year-old story of going there? I mean, that is, that, is, that is unbelievable. And the other story of going over with the Time magazine and the Newsweek and all the intelligent things and then wanting scope and watching your video, 
Who was it you saw? Why wasn't it that you wrote that story? Gosh. Well, that story is, is I think I, I wrote it in my, my memoir. It was Done there. It really? was there. Um, I didn't want to get involved. I didn't want to interfere. Um, I just think the great discipline about a novel is it's not a memoir. It's not in the first person, which I've written about many times in the past. Um, and one of the great editing uh, tasks was to take out my punchlines. You know, I sometimes have, obviously, it's a good line, hypocrisy is the Vaseline of political intercourse. Write it into everything. But that's not what novels are about. So I had to set the scene and then allow the atmosphere, allow the tensions and allow the stories to come out of the ordinary. And I say ordinary because nobody's ordinary. But they're not famous and they're not infamous. They are... Karen, on the one hand, terrified of the water, gets seasick, and in fact she becomes a prisoner on the island because she can't get to Cape Town, she's too scared. Rosa, who is brash and sort of a young Charlize Theron, um, and she uh, is sexy and she plays it up and she she teases men um, dangerously. And then they have the warder, um, Hroblar, and Hroblar in the play was an incredibly good-looking young Afrikaans actor, and that was one of the criticisms I had from the play. They said, how can you make that man so attractive? Aren't they all with cauliflower ears and knuckles trailing in the dust? I said, stop it. No. A Robert Redford can very easily be a policeman on an island torturing prisoners. Um, I had to do a lot of research and homework as well, reading all these great books we now have, uh, of the memory of the humour, of the memory of the jokes that these extraordinary men shared with each other, and the fact that they were never in jail. We, in Cape Town, were in the jail of fear and prejudice and terror. Um, and the fact that we just didn't even say to the people in power during the 70s and the 80s, excuse me, you mean I can't see a picture of a man? Can't I hear his voice? No, you can't. And because we were so scared, we were paralyzed. Um, and that is an important strain in the story of Panorama. The paralysis of the 80s and the danger of the paralysis of the 90s and our new century, where we are taking democracy and freedom for granted. Uh, and while we do that, it's being very, very carefully chipped away. And that happens in every democracy. Uh, but it wasn't a wake-up call from that point of view. I do that in other areas. I just, I just was so thrilled to, um, to be able to bring the story that is still very pertinent uh, back into, I suppose, another, another, another guise uh, and then bring in young people. I'm very, very inspired by youth. Yes. Uh, I need to go back to my schools with my age program and I'll take a story of where we come from. I do my life for them. I say to them, when I was your age, I couldn't sit next to the person you're sitting next to because the person sitting next to you was not allowed. And they say, no, come on. They didn't believe it because they're not being taught. But then again, there's so much to look forward to. It's dangerous for a child to look back. Uh, so again, humor is a great weapon, a weapon of mass distraction. People don't, the kids don't feel they're going to get a lecture or a finger wag. One of the benefits of being older is that you can look back and you can look at the present and you can look forward and you can look back with knowledge and experience and memories. But in your case, you've woven the, the yesterday, today and tomorrow together very cleverly. Um, because, and I, as I read it, I thought, gee, I remember that. How did you remember that? Gosh, that's amazing. Now I realize how you remember it because 
that was what you had written at the time. So there were fresh memories that you've got. Yes, but you know, at the time I had very little information about Robben Island because mm. there was nothing allowed from there. You know, we had the Protection of State Information Act in the different guys in those days. So a lot of what I had as a political echo in the play was literally just an echo at a suggestion because also it was illegal to quote banned literature. I mean, of course we did it because the idiot government didn't know what they were banning anyway. Uh, that I would do when I was alone on stage. Uh, but in a play, I've got in this case four people with me and I was very careful not to endanger them because it was a danger. We had security police sniffing around. Um, Grahamstown was quite a frightening place in those years, states of emergency. I remember one year we lost people in our company. One of them was never seen again. We think was killed. Um, and what we were doing on those stages was actually a challenge to the authorities. I think most of the authorities just thought, oh, what the hell, let them get it over with, because it's mainly in English, you see. Again, Panorama was an English title. Panorama was the Afrikaans Tijdschrift. And I knew out of experience that if I wrote an Afrikaans play, it would be stopped. Uh, but again, the play had, was bilingual. It was Afrikaans and English. But there was more English than Afrikaans than an English title, so one could play their game as well. I want to come back to the issue of paralysis. Um, it's such a good word. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the fear, the absolute abject, I can't possibly do this. And that reflects very much in, in Karen and Rosa when this third woman comes along and is to stay in their home. But they're not allowed to have any more than two in one room at any one time. And I thought, you're joking. You're joking. Clearly not. Yes, I mean, no. that, that sort of paralysis that they all felt about, oh, but there are too many of us in one room. Is it true? Yes, it is. Yeah. It is. That was the, the, the law, the banning order. You were allowed in a room with one person, not two. And in the case of these three women, there's Rosa and Karen and Sibi. Um, Sibi, of course, with that wonderful sense of humor, which so many young black women and men during that terrible time of, of death, um, Winnie Mandela had this wonderful, extraordinary sense of irony. Um, kept them alive. Uh, and she would say to Karen, well, listen, we, we're breaking the law. And Karen go, oh, no, we're breaking the law. And Karen, you go and sit outside. So you sit in the Southeaster and eat your fish cake. So, uh, to get, and of course, even at the time, the audiences reacted exactly like you reacted. Said, oh gosh, that's so funny. Surely not. I said, surely yes. That is the law as we sit here. There's so much that is hard to believe. Reflecting back on where we reflect now, talking about reflecting back, I mean, the, the picture on the cover is, is the panorama that they look up, out on. Um, and those are the, isn't it ironic that those are the images we always see of Cape Town, which is from Robben Island. Extraordinary. Corin and Rosa, you said you had to do quite a lot of research and you knew that there had been two women teachers. Did you get to find out more about them? Or Corin and Rosa, are they of your own making as their characters? I did, um, I did find out quite a lot about the people um, the, the, uh, and I was very careful not to be too specific because they were there. They were there. Rosa and Karen were very much my creations. Um, I think Karen is very much a cousin of mine who, uh, who I uh, once uh, talked about the play too and she was quite flattered although she wasn't quite sure if she should be flattered. Um, I have a feeling that this actually will make a great movie. Um, I have sent it to one or two people um, because 
Robben Island is such an extraordinary international... I mean, you talk about the Statue of Liberty, you talk about the Eiffel Tower, you talk about Buckingham Palace, you talk about Robben Island. And then, of course, Table Mountain. We are surrounded in this extraordinary city of Cape Town by such iconic things that will last forever. We might not last forever, but the mountain will last forever, and so will that island. Um, and the great thing now is that the, uh, the penguins have come back. Uh, and during those terrible years of, of fear, the penguins weren't there. And then again, putting myself into the situation of the prisoner, of the father, the, the, the man who was dying, mm-hmm. and, and, and then he dies, and then this, and Khrobla's cold-blooded ambition, um, and then one or two of the knuckles in the dust, you know, and the, the, the cauliflower ears, uh, chaps that one explain. And then of course there's the, the, um, the quarry. You know, again, an extraordinary story was, I eventually ended up on Robert Island with the Vita Besaid note for the TV show Funny Galore, which we did for Mnet in 1994, the first year of our democracy. And she took uh, Mac Maharaj, or he took her, in disguise, because he used to come in disguise and create chaos during, the, during apartheid. And so Evita gave him a groucher mask, a groucher nose and, and, and things, and we tiptoed, or she and he tiptoed onto the boat in disguise, much to the amazement of the people who remember Mac Maharaj as a prisoner. Um, and we were, we were in, the, in the, that gravel uh, quarry, me as a character, me in high heel shoes, you know, it was like sacrilege, it was like being on, on, on the heels of Golfgitter in, in a dress. It was very difficult, and yet it worked because I had to be real, and Mac could talk to her. And that's where we sat on a bench with this incredible view behind us of Table Mountain, where Evita said, Oh, leave Ardemak, you know, you've got to realize that, yes, 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 we kept you in jail, but look, you're still here, and we kept you all alive, um, and we gave you the best view in the world. And he said, Well, you know, Evita, we had no view. And one of our great inspirations was the occasional child's laughter we heard wafting across the wall. And those were the children that Karen and Rosa were teaching. Uh, so all these extraordinary moments have been woven in and, and uh, uh, it's um, yeah and I've been back again recently and I know there's always bad news oh Robin Island isn't being run properly mm-hmm. and it's been run extremely well you don't have to do anything except change the toilet rolls leave everything as it is and we've got the, gu- the, the guides are extraordinary the people who were there uh, who were personal um, and entertaining you are a repository of stories, this Peter Deck. It's just extraordinary to hear how many stories. And I wonder to myself, as I was reading your book, I could hear your voice. Um, because there are times when it's quite serious, it's times when it's quite uh, funny, and there's times when it's totally wicked, which is absolutely you. <laughs> so it's quite difficult, I would imagine, for you to get that balance right, given that you've written so much. You are very prolific. And I was interested to see that, in fact, that you have... Um, it is remembering... Is it Alois Lamprecht? Alois Lamprecht. Your, your teacher, your English teacher. My English teacher from Standard 8, Miss Alois Nell. You said that you can, what, what is your line? You can do it. You can, if you believe in it and work towards it, you can do anything. Yes, and, and uh, she died last year, and I think about her so often. Um, and it, when I was a little boy, I thought she was old. All teachers were old. She was about eight years older than me. You know, now, I mean, it's like extraordinary. Me in my 60s, she was in her late 60s. Um, 
And she said to us in Standard 8, I was in Afrikaans school, she said, you must write me a poem. And I thought, Buchitz, what is a poem? No, Miss Nell, I can't write a poem. She said, yes, Peter, you can. I said, no, Miss, I can't. She said, Peter, you can do anything. If you believe in it and work towards it, you can do anything. And, you know, I've realized in the last 20, 30, 40 years that it has become this, the mantra of my life because, yeah, you can do anything. It's work that makes it work. It doesn't pop out of the sky. And um, we've been talking with, we talked, I told her about the book. Um, I sent her the original first draft, and my spelling is appalling. And she said, you won't ever change. I said, no, but there are people like you who make a, a career out of being great correctors of spelling. And she said, yes. And so I've dedicated this book to her, to Aloise Nell, Aloise Lamprecht, who lived and died in Neisner and is with me so vividly all the time. Listening to SFM Literature here on SFM, and I am talking to the inimitable Peter Durkace. Indeed, I am, and uh, also just talking about Peter Durkace and his book, Panorama. Just had a call from Mike from Sedgefield, who suggests that this book should absolutely be made into a movie. And, uh, Mike, I promise I shall pass that on to Peter Durkace himself, and uh, who knows, but that it might. In a minute, we're going to be hearing him talking more about his other alter ego, Bambi Kellerman. My name is Brad George. I always like the bling. I just don't like working for it. <laughs> My friend in the government paid me for the eight million rand for a website. It cost me next to nothing. <laughs> Corruption is no joke. People who abuse public resources are stealing money that could be used to build houses, hospitals and schools. To confront corruption, we must hold our leaders to account. Let's report corruption. SMS the word bribe and your tip off to 45142 or visit corruptionwatch.org.za and use our online reporting tool. SMS costs one rand. This message is brought to you by Corruption Watch. When the swing of jazz meets the swing of golf, you are invited to be a part of the fourth annual Standard Bank Joy of Jazz Golf Day on the 20th of August 2013 at the prestigious Ranch Park Golf Course. Entertainment by the internationally acclaimed jazz singer Renee Mari. For golf packages, email giddy at k-wave.co.za or call 072-338-2432. Joy of Jazz Golf Day, supported by SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Well, right now here on SAFM Literature, we're listening to Peter Dirk Ace, and aside from his book Panorama that we were just talking about there, Peter Dirkace is currently playing at the Fugard Theatre in Cape Town. He's currently playing Bambi Kellerman in Fifty Shades of Bambi, who has apparently also written an autobiography. My most famous creature is Evita Pesenet, of course. It's been around for over 35 years, uh, which is quite extraordinary. I mean, I just love the idea that I came into the studio. she to be over 21. Uh, Evita is, is 10 years older than me, which is a great irritation for her, I think. But it's, it's always very useful when people say, gosh, she's looking good. She has to look good. But she has this sister called Bambi Kellerman, who was baby Pochenpul when they grew up in Bethlehem, who went to Europe and became a stripper and really became a grand horizontal in the Northern Hemisphere. And as she said, she, with her German accent, I, res- I, I graduated from the University of Sex Cum Laude. And now I'm here. And I've been through the world three times round, and I've done everything twice. And I wrote her biography, autobiography, she says I helped her, which was also another great journey to just take this non-existent creature, 
who exists because of another non-existent creature and flash out a whole life history by finding out what happened in the world around her at that time. And, in fact, the most wonderful thing about her book is called Never Too Naked. It's been out for about a year. It was published by Zebra. It's now on Kindle, which is lovely. Kindle, um, Amazon Kindle, so people can get it there and, and nobody will see what they're reading, like Fifty Shades of Grey. And she has met up with some extraordinary people. She met up with Zara Leander in, in Vienna. She met up with Marlene Dietrich in Paris. She ended up as being her char. Uh, she met Miguel Callas. She met Christian Barnard, um, Jack, Jack Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe. Eva Gardner, and my research had to make sure that at that moment in the life of Bambi Kellerman, when she meets Eva Gardner, Eva Gardner was there, and if you actually go through a Wikipedia, you can actually Google the reality of where she was through the reality of where those people were. So I had to get every fact right. It was a marvelous experience and great fun and liberated the character within me so that now I can... Uh, two years ago, I did a show called with Bumby, for Bumby, called FR Car Songs and Other Struggle Anthems at the Fugard Theatre in Cape Town, which won the Fleur de Cup for satire, which was a wonderful tongue-in-cheek moment for me and her and Bambi and this is the Fifty Shades of Bambi which obviously as you can imagine has been inspired by the grey book that uh, everybody seems to have read to page 12 at least (laughs) Um, and it's a very exciting with Godfrey Johnson again as my musical director and as my pianist um, and we've worked together for 20 years with Bambi Um, it is really important for me to to celebrate what cabaret is for me, and it is not just standing on stage telling jokes and singing nice songs and um, putting on high-heeled shoes and a swastika. It is actually taking terribly serious things and, and creating anarchy, the anarchy of sex, the anarchy of truth and fiction, the anarchy of uh, blasphemy, very dangerous areas. Uh, uh, please let me offend everybody, but not all the time. It's too confusing and too exhausting. Um, and there is a sense of danger, and the danger in this show, The Shades of Bambi, is do parents know how to talk to their kids about sex if they haven't got the courage to talk to each other about what they like and what they do not like? Because if we don't talk to the children, the children get lost. Mm-hmm. And I think the new apartheid in South Africa uh, is between parents and children. It's about how do I talk to my parents? I get this from the kids when I go to the school with my programs. I travel around with my, my HIV program and programs, as I told you, about South Africa and about respect. Oh, just entertaining, entertaining through realities. Um, and they say to me, I can't talk to my parents. I say, well, tell them what I told you today. They will either be shocked or they will laugh with you. And maybe a door and a window can open. And then I meet parents who say, what do I say to my kids? You know, so now I say to parents, bring your kids to my show listen to Bambi and answer the questions in the car on the way home. Well, I would say that you've not only opened windows, I would say you've flung open doors, <laughs> left, right and centre. I just want to come back to Bambi and the writing and the, all the things she did and you in, in some ways sort of built her through her past. feels like following your own fantasies in a way. I mean, you've created her, you've, you've gone to places that she's gone, literally or in your own head. In writing her, has it or writing through her has it helped sort of help you create her but has it helped you create another you as well two questions wonderful question Um, I've suddenly thought that maybe Evita and Bambi are the two parts of my schizophrenia 
I'm an Afrikaner, I'm a German Jew through my mother. Um, Evita is very much the reality of the Afrikaans conservatism because I think part of me has that through my background. I keep on saying to people, don't forget that I was a racist till 1994 because it was politically correct. I mean, I fought against it and I was called all sorts of names and banned for that and, and got into tremendous trouble. And then suddenly it was no longer politically correct and now I'm a Democrat at the age of 50. So life can start at the age of 50. And yet Bambi is that other side. She goes to Germany. She gets involved with her husband, Joachim von Kellermann, who was a Nazi she didn't know because she came from the Free State and he was quite familiar and quite comforting. Um, and so there is an echo of that. Uh, it, it, I've been on that journey with her as well. Um, and many of the places that I took her to, uh, I experienced like being on the island of Ischia in 1969, where we just, it was this beautiful, wonderful summer. Uh, and the Christina was moored in the bay with Jacqueline Onassis and Mr. Onassis. We saw them walking down the street with her big sunglasses. And Sophia Loren, my friend, <laughs> sent me a telegram saying, I I'm sorry, I can't see you. I'm not in Rome, but have a wonderful holiday. And let me know how you are. Love, Sophia. And suddenly this telegram went all over the whole island and my sister Tessa and I were treated to free drinks because we knew, hey, bravo, bravo, you know, Sophia, Sophia. And so a lot of it yeah. actually, and in fact I wrote Sophia into the Bambi story at one moment without even knowing who she was, but you guessed. How could you not? There's so much in your past, but so much in your future. And you alluded earlier to the fact that you're fascinated by young people and you're inspired by them and the technology and all the things that ways of moving ahead. Do you think one day you might be writing the autobiography of Avita's grandchildren? I mean, do you, <laughs> it's your, it's your, um, you know, are your headlights flashing far enough ahead? I want to tell stories. Um, I think to me. What I do on stage is also based on the fact of stories. Um, yes, the political reality is, I suppose, the perfume. Um, I realize now that fighting apartheid was relatively easy because it was such an easy target. But fighting the cancer of corruption that is actually destroying our society needs the chemotherapy of transparency, which means we will lose our hair. Are we prepared to sacrifice in order to get things more or less back to a balance. Um, I have only got one way of doing it, and that is to highlight the absurdity of the fear. And I keep on saying that, you know, if you look away from what f frightens you, it'll become so huge that you will never have the courage to look back and realize that you made a mistake. You'll be frightened for the rest of your life. Just lastly, you have some wonderful analogies up your sleeve. Just going back to your wonderful teacher, Eloise. Mm. <laughs> Eloise. Did you, did you study writing, or is it just something that, by dint of using words orally, you're able to write as well? I think dialogue has been my strong point. I think that was the biggest success of my play, plays during the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I don't think I was good on structure, but I was very good on dialogue, and people sort of allowed me to get away with that. But I feel now the, 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 the joy of writing, the privacy of writing, the incredible freedom of allowing the characters to just run away. They run away. I think, what are they, where are they going? And I just think, just follow, 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 and sometimes you just can't do any more. Now, what does that mean? Is that writer's block? No, I think writer's block happens through ego. I think if the writer has an ego, 
the characters won't come in. So you've got to keep your windows and doors open, and they come in and they steal your clothes, they steal your food, they run out into the garden, and the next story goes there. But the wonderful thing is, don't ever be frightened of what you write, because you don't have to show it to anybody. Everybody thinks, what does it look like? You know, what will the critics say? You can burn it, you can write War and Peace and destroy it, nobody will know. That is the great thing to anybody who wants to write. My point is, put your finger down your creative throat and let it come out. Well, there you go. Peter Dirk is, and uh, he is presently, incidentally, performing at uh, Bambi Kellerman in Fifty Shades of Bambi at the Fugard Theatre. And his books that we've been talking about there are Panorama, uh, published by um, Missing Ink, and also Never Too Naked. That's Bambi Kellerman, and that's available online. Inter- interestingly, um, listening to him talking about writing, we're going to be talking more about writing and how you too can write a book in just 40 hours right here on SAFM Literature. So do stay with us. And don't forget, we're going to be talking not about writing, but about reading just now. And if you've got thoughts on that, you'd like to share 891 104 207. Going to give you the Joe Berg number. It's 891 104 207. Stay with us. <laughs> 